Can a marriage survive infidelity? We dig deep to explore this thorny question. Join me, Jean-Claude Chalmet, and founder of The Place Retreats and a featured columnist for The Times, with Amy Cooper and Louise Daniels, on The Place Retreats podcast. Search Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite Android app. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Your Next Episode podcast. I'm Louise Daniels and this week I'm solo hosting as Amy's away and I'm so thrilled to be talking to Dr. Nagat Arif at her home. Hello Nagat. Hello. Hi. Uh, Nagat is an NHS and private GP with a specialist interest in women's health and you've probably seen her on television on BBC Breakfast uh, and also heard her on BBC Radio. Um, I've been following her on social media for about nine months and I know how highly regarded she is by other professionals and also by the women she supports um, on on social media and in her practice. Uh, Today we're going to initially focus on the experience of menopause in ethnic minority communities but first Nigat can you talk us through your work in 2019 which I think was quite a big year for you um, and the people you've collaborated with to support women around the menopause and also in your community. Well, firstly, thank you so much for having me on You're your welcome. podcast. It's an absolute honour. I'm genuinely chuffed that you've come to see me because <laughs> uh, I feel I'm a bit of a wanderer. 2019 actually turned out to be a really chaotic and hectic year, all in a good way. Mm. Uh, Wake Up to the Menopause happened with BBC Breakfast, led by Louise Mitchum, because she opened up her story. And yeah. I think that was so significant and paramount importance for so many women because it allowed the conversation to start. But actually, I'd been working with... Uh, in and around midlife um, medical issues with women in my own community in Chesham, where I live, um, speaking to the Pakistani women in their own language, because I'm fluent in Punjabi and yeah. Urdu. And it was speaking to those women that I realized that a lot of the symptoms from the aunties, and I say that in quotation marks, mm. because when you're Pakistani, everybody's your auntie. <laughs> um, they would come up to me at the mosque uh, in Sainsbury's, uh, in youth centers and say, Nigat, I've got all these symptoms. I've got no memory. I've got tiredness and I'm really fatigued everything aches so they will say that means from my head to my toes doctor everything hurts Mm. and I would say to them oh do you know what I'm not too sure what this is but go back to your GP and maybe they'll help you but all these symptoms were hodgepodge symptoms they'd almost come and go and then I'll see them at a next event and they'll be like oh it's gone now those hot flushes aren't there anymore the physical symptoms were the ones that they would come to speak to me about. I very rarely get any symptoms about mood or feeling uh, upset or tearful or anxious. Those were symptoms that would never come. And it was actually then uh, had a family friend who had complained of aches and pains. She'd been misdiagnosed as having fibromyalgia or diagnosed as having fibromyalgia, put on high dose steroids and she went out to put some clothes on the line. She fell and had a fractured neck of femur, wheelchair bound. And it was then that I realized that actually what she was telling me was the menopause. Mm. Those were menopausal symptoms. Now I do the menopause at work. I, as a women's health expert, this is what I, what I deal with, but it wasn't hot flushes that she ever told me. It was more of these banal hodgepodge type symptoms that were coming and going. Um, Then she'd be all right again for decades. She would tell me this. 
discussing periods was something that I could never talk about. You couldn't talk about it, not because you didn't want to talk about it, but because they would find that very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable, yeah. because yeah. Uh, it's it's still a subject that is very um, taboo, uh, mm. very hidden. Uh, it's something that actually not most women will volunteer about at all to say, oh, I have uh, heavy periods or I don't have periods. And it's actually when then I sat down with a lot of my mum's friends and I said to them, you know the symptoms that you're describing they could be menopausal and they all laughed and giggled and said oh no but we like the menopause we don't have periods anymore I can go to the mosque and pray and I can go to weddings and you know do all the rituals that I want to do it's a happy event we have menopause parties (laughs) (laughs) and so it was on the one hand it was a celebration and then on the other hand it was well this is something that we don't suffer with it's a Caucasian problem or a white woman's problem. And I say that in quotation marks and I apologize if that's very derogatory, but that is what was in the community as, as an issue. And then I realized actually, oh my goodness, because they believe this isn't something that happens to them, we're missing them. We're misdiagnosing these women and and they're getting the completely wrong end of the stick. So women aren't going to their GP and saying, I have these symptoms. I think it's the menopause. And on the other hand, there are doctors who aren't trained in um, the menopause no. um, and they are missing them and doing a whole battery of unnecessary tests, possibly giving her antidepressants yeah. because they think it's depression and having this misnomer. This is oh, an Asian lady head to toe pain because we see that or sometimes it's diagnosed as um, miscellaneous uh, pain or pain of unknown origin right. and and it's it, that's not how we should be dealing with the community at all um so that work led on to doing some talk shows at uh, bbc three counties radio i then got involved with diane dansbrick yes. because we met again on the radio initially because we were talking about the menopause and i was trying to explain to people that hrt isn't the devil that people think it is no. uh, the research behind that is flawed and what we need to do is look at that research in a practical way, because the WHO study that was done uh, over a decade ago said, do not take HRT. Mm. It will give you breast cancer. It will give you clots. But that was a flawed bit yes, of research. Yes, yeah. Um, but nobody picked up at that. No. It was, it, <laughs> and but you know now, about that now. I think so back in August, there was, it was still being, uh, you know, like things like the Daily Mail were putting headlines, of really course. scary headlines out. And then, uh, you know, people like yourself, Diane Danzy, bring, um, Louise Newson, Liz Earle were saying, no, that research was flawed. But when people it just wasn't... see it as a headline, yeah. they kind of go, well, oh, that's it. It's going to give me breast and, cancer. And those headlines really mm. work. So it's like the clickbait, yeah, yeah. um, mm. sensationalised headlines. And when you look at that, um, you really do think, oh, gosh, I don't want to get this. And there were lots of people coming forward saying, I've got breast cancer. So celebs were coming forward. Women were suffering with menopausal symptoms, but yet not wanting to take the treatment. Mm. And that was studies based on a synthetic form of HRT given to women over the age of 60, mm. Um stopped halfway the study wasn't randomized control study um and they didn't actually look at uh what were the risk of these women having breast cancer anyway because one in eight women are at risk have a risk of having breast cancer mm. and they are not even on hrt mm. in fact obesity mm. is the biggest cause of breast cancer far far more yeah. than hrt yeah but this seeped through within the ethnic minority communities yeah, as well, mm-hmm. because GPs like myself, and I'll hold my, my hand up to this, I was a young doctor then, um, having information from the Department of Health, uh, the GMC, uh, the Medicines Regulation Authority saying, do not prescribe HRT because these are all the risks. Or if we, if I did want to prescribe it for a patient, I would get all these flashes on our computer system right. going, are you sure you want to prescribe this? And when you're a young doctor, it gets really nerve wracking and really scary. So I did. I actively used to do medication reviews and then counsel a woman and take her off HRT. Mm. It was when I saw Dr. Louise Newson doing a talk over at the Oxford Women's Health Conference that I thought I really need to go because it, it, there was a lacking in my education and a lacking of my own knowledge because those women that I had taken off HRT would come back with worsening symptoms, suicidal symptoms, yeah. because we forget mm. that actually being sleep deprived, depressed, anxious all the time, memory fog, losing yourself, irritability, your marriage breaks down, Mm. you can't have sex because your libido's gone. 
that really, really impacts a woman's yeah. life to the point where she is suicidal and she thinks, well, what, what am I doing? This yeah. is completely... Life's not even, just, yeah. Yeah, life's not even worth living. Not worth living, no. And that really made me incredibly sad as a doctor. That's not why I trained to be a doctor, no. to do that. The nice guidance had come about at that time that said, because they revised all the guidelines, they looked at it again, um, went to Louise Neeson's talk and she said, HRT is okay. HRT has moved mm. on leaps and bounds by then. We've now got transdermal, so patches mm -hmm. or a gel. Can I just ask what made you go to her talk? Because the impression I'm getting, I know GPs, you know, their basic training, there's very little time spent on the on the menopause. But you specialise in women's health. Was that because it was a personal interest to you? That's why you went along? I was really lucky in my training. Within your training uh, to become a GP, you do different specialities and you spend some time with them. I was really lucky. I did get women's health. Mm -hmm. So I got gynecology for six months. So I did everything from doing maternity checks, delivering, delivering babies, emergency C-sections, dealing with miscarriages, mm. all the way up to infertility problems. And then the menopause on the other side as well, um, you know, prolapses, etc. So I was really lucky. And then I was in a practice where I had a very uh, proactive uh, trainer, Dr. Vivian Carter, who was very pro-HRT um, until the guidance came about that actually we shouldn't be prescribing it. And then we all got very muddled as junior oh, doctors. Very confusing, yeah, yeah. Very confusing. And I can only imagine how confusing it is for women on the other end of it. But also it's because when I was speaking to ladies at the mosque, in my communities, I realized that they were really embarrassed to talk about women's health and we don't have the words. So for me to be able to have the language skill, I could cross two barriers. Yeah. I, could, I could teach them mm. how to actually go and speak to the doctor who doesn't speak Punjabi or Urdu mm. to ask what they are suffering with because we don't have those language skills entirely. I mean, in fact, periods, mm. you know, we now use the word periods within the Punjabi language but the act there's no there's no common term for periods it's in, oh. in Punjabi it's known as kapre, uh, which means like having a rag or being on the rag it's similar right. to that or um they say mensis right. and if you're slightly more educated in in the in, in Urdu you, they will say they will use the English word so we substitute a lot of English words into our own language but if you've got somebody who's from authentically from a village in Pakistan who comes over here through marriage they're not going to no. have those skills at all. No. And wow. also because it's sexualized. Mm. So the minute you have a women's health problem, even if it's, you know, my breasts are tender, mm. that's such a sexualized um, uh, subject. Mm. If you sexualize something, you, you put it into a box and you don't talk about it because mm. we're very conservative and you don't talk about something that means that you spill out into the open your private business. And unfortunately still... I think within my community and maybe as a culture in the whole in the UK, the minute a woman starts to talk about gynecological problem and it becomes sexualized, then you start thinking that the woman is promiscuous. Women shy away from talking about sex because they don't want people to think that she's either enjoying it or having too much of it yeah. or not having enough. No, you know, know all these you yeah. all these sort of um, issues come about because I, I see it within Caucasian women, Afro-Caribbean women, you know, Japanese women. They don't want to talk about it because it's almost seen like, oh no, we don't do sex. Yes. So going back to the language barrier, in 2019, can you talk us through um, some of the other projects that you did yeah, relating to that? Well, I actually got in touch uh, with uh, Jane Lewis, so the author of My Menopause or Vagina, yeah, the brilliant Jane. She's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> she's wonderful. Jane said to me, I'm doing this leaflet on vaginal dryness, vaginal atrophy, and it's something that is really taboo. And I said, oh my gosh, this is so taboo. Mm. And I see it a lot in my... Um, surgeries and mainly I see seven you know 60 70 year olds who will use for example on the back of a different consultation they'll suss me out and then realize that um, they feel comfortable enough to show me their vagina yeah. and show me that they're itching at night and having all these terrible urinary oh. symptoms yeah. um, and that's how that conversation comes and I said it'd be brilliant if we could have a this translated and she goes that'd be awesome if you could translate this into Urdu that'd be brilliant so Jane and her husband put this leaflet together which was overlooked by Diane and Dr Louise Neeson yes. yeah 
and um, she handed it over to me and I said, yeah, give me some time. Let me see what I can do with it. I, I can translate it into Urdu, if that's okay. Um, my husband speaks fluently in Urdu. He's from Pakistan. And he looked at this. <laughs> There's a big picture of the vulva <laughs> on, the, on the leaflet. <laughs> and he just went, okay, do I have to translate the vulva? <laughs> and everything around all the anatomy. And I said, don't worry, we can, we can somehow get somebody else to help us with it. Because I needed to learn all the words. Mm. Um, and there are no words. I mean, we, right. we just use English uh, substitutions for it. Uh, got this leaflet translated. And then Elizabeth Ellis, Karen Kenning and Claire Shepard. So the Positivity Girls Know Your Menopause, mm. um, who'd got together after the Wake Up to the Menopause campaign uh, at BBC Breakfast contacted me and said we'd be grateful if you could translate our poster into Urdu because we are trying to aim to get this all over practices uh, and gyms and hairdressers uh, so women can look at this and say oh actually these hodgepodge type symptoms that I'm getting maybe I can join the dots and this is the menopause and that again has gone global with the leaflet that Jane Lewis has done that's gone global as well and it's really opened up this conversation and it's more inclusive this way you're mm. looking at all the diversity as well mm. and doing those little projects just feeds into the the bigger aim which is we do want more knowledge and empowerment behind uh, how menopause is dealt with at the GP level because GPs can deal with this mm, really mm, easily. Mm. Um, and But making sure it's on the curriculum, making sure that people at school, so Diane already yes. has achieved her, yeah, uh, yeah. her campaign to get it into schools. Um, and then obviously the workplace as well. So yeah. if we can get literature like this up. Mm. So that's where it came back to doing all these little projects in 2019. Mm. And it was really going back to the language that we use because mostly... I don't know what your experience is, Louise. When people talk about the menopause, it's almost derogatory or ha, 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 mm. that she has a bit of hot flushes, isn't it? Yes. Or, yeah. you know, all right, darling, don't get yeah. into a twist because your mood swings might come back yeah, again. Absolutely. And it is, it's yes. seen as a joke. Yeah. But it's not a joke. No. no. It, it doesn't have to be that way. No. And, and it's the not talking about it. You know, that's how I came to, you know, want to start sort of looking into talking about it more, yeah. like in the podcast, for example, because... I, for about a year, mm. had symptoms. I just thought perhaps, well, I actually self-diagnosed myself. I thought perhaps I've got some sort of cancer or maybe I'm getting early onset dementia. Mm. Perhaps I'm suffering from depression because of all of those symptoms that, and I just thought your period stop and you get hot flushes and that's that. So That's yeah. a really relevant point mm. because that's frightening. If you are mm. feeling those symptoms and you think I've got cancer. I know. That is so frightening. And do you know what the thing is, is that mm. just as you were saying about you making excuses, or it could be this, it could mm. be this. This is, this is exactly the same mm. thing I'm experiencing with my yeah. Pakistani ladies because I'll say to them, but the reason that you're possibly feeling like this is perimenopausal because you can get symptoms as young as 40 and that's the other thing that really throws people off because it must be that I have to stop my periods yeah. actually no you no. can still have regular periods but that's what I was thinking but I have the symptoms periods, but yeah, so yeah. in my culture it's still practice to um, look after your children and then you look after your parents right. and there's still within the community that I live with the cultural norm is for arranged marriages mm. and <laughs> most of the times a lot of these perimenopausal type symptoms will come about when they are in the midst of trying to look after their elderly parents. Yeah. The children are probably leaving, you know, the nest and going off to university and getting more independent. Mothers then are panicking about how am I going to marry my daughter off and mm -hmm. how's my son going to behave? There's a lot going on anyway. There's a lot going on anyway. And, then, to, yeah. and so when I speak to women, they will they will almost dismiss the symptoms straight away and think, oh no, it's not the menopause. I'm 40. I'm still having periods. This is because I'm worried about my daughter's arranged marriage yeah. or I've got to look for her rishta, or I've got to do this. And uh, we do as women, we don't think about the hormonal imbalances. We instantly think, mm. or the, on the other flip scenario is that women don't put themselves first. Mm. No, they will, they will put up with it, put up with it. And I'm always flabbergasted how much women will put up with mm. before they come and sit down with the doctor. And if the doctor is able to firstly on the NHS have more than 10 minutes, mm. um, give them the time. And luckily a lot of my colleagues are incredibly hardworking and we will take the time to put it all together is then we say, well, this is the diagnosis. Mm. But then on top of that, if you've got the hierarchy of the, of the professional body saying, 
do not give the treatment to the women. Oh, no, yes. So, do you see where we yeah. are? We're in this vicious cycle. Yeah. And the, just actually having conversations, that's what needs to happen. More, that's exactly more, more, what and, we need. You know, yeah. This is why Louise Mitchum talking about it was really powerful. Yes. Because having one person who says, God, I lost myself and I have to get up at three o'clock in the morning and be in front of the TV. And actually all I want to do is have a... Um, a meltdown mm, mm. Um, and she was so honest and so brave that just gave a lot of voices to a lot of women to say I feel like this and on the flip side the amazing amount of response from men mm. I would get so many men who would who would come and see me afterwards after I was on BBC Breakfast saying to me thank you for talking about it because it gave my wife uh, almost clarity of what she was feeling mm. so I'll tell you this really sweet story because I, I think when I did my interview I spoke Punjabi on the sofa and um, a, a dear family friend of mine uh, stopped me in the street and said, Nigat, Nigat, when you were on the sofa, we were we were having a cup of tea and my wife was in the kitchen washing the dishes, etc. She heard you speak Punjabi, which is never done on BBC Breakfast. No, <laughs> Nobody speaks Punjabi <laughs> on the show. She stopped, she ran into the living room and watched you and she just started crying and she goes, Oh my God, it's the menopause. This is why I feel so rubbish. And she'd been suffering with perimenopausal symptoms, oh, depression, yeah, anxiety, yeah. terrible anxiety, terrible insomnia um, for sort of years on and off and hadn't really spoken to anybody about it, but just suffered in silence. So can I ask, is there any work being done within the NHS to address these issues? Uh, you know, and what else needs to happen? There's so much work being done at the minute, Good. Louise, and um, all for the right reasons as well. Because of figureheads and campaigners like Diane Dansbrook, Dr. Louise Newson, Jane Lewis, Katie Taylor, the Positivity Girls, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and also Meg Matthews as uh -huh. well, because they're using all these platforms to be able to openly talk about it. And I just think little bits of information are coming out and that's just adding to it. And thank goodness for the world of social media, yeah. because that means we can get more oh, and absolutely. more information yeah. out. Um, and on the NHS front, NHS England are really keen to make the NHS website that a lot of people do turn to for advice as the best and the most robust uh, website in order to provide evidence-based uh, clinical advice and where to go to. And the Royal College of GPs are working with Dr. Louise New in order to provide um, care and also training modules uh, for doctors. Um, and they are trying to look at how they can incorporate that into the curriculum. So I, I do think that baby steps, small steps, mm. but it's going to happen because yeah. we need it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes small steps to make waves and mm. I would say we're going to make tsunamis oh, yes, yes, <laughs> <soon>. yes. <laughs> and this is just going to get bigger and bigger mm. because it is hopefully 2020 is going to be the year of the women yeah. well it's going to be yeah. more and more powerful women coming forward and this is the only this is the best way yeah. in order to get yeah. more education out there yeah um, so you talked about um you know the NHS you're making their website you know the real go-to place for evidence clear evidence-based information yeah. and so for women from ethnic communities to get information and support would you say but yes the nhs website is the best place of for course, them to of go course. yeah there's a we we have to make sure that we have some a standardized body that is backing that up mm. with the nice guidance um that was one uh real way of allowing doctors to say yes you can prescribe hrt this is the different types of hrt that's available and as diane has often said menopause can become the new black mm. so you've got to be really careful because people do then use it as an opportunity to possibly make a bit of money mm. um i'm I talk about the menopause and everything for free, yes. like yourself. Mm. It's more about getting information out there um, that's clear and also empowering women to be able to talk about it. So it's trying to make sure that it's it, it's clinically evidence-based and ethnic minority communities equally can turn to NHS website. And hopefully in the future with more translation, better translation services mm. coming in, if we can, that's even better. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'd also like to ask you um, about organ donation today, uh, mm. specifically in regard to um, ethnic minority groups. Um, I'm going to ask you to tell us your story in a second and Kasim's story. But I was really surprised by the figures. I just want to check I've got these right. So in 2018, just 8% of deceased donors were from black, Asian or minority ethnic groups. Mm. And 31% of those waiting for an organ are from those groups. And I know that Kasim waited longer for his liver transplant that he needed because you're from an ethnic minority longer than your white mm. counterparts would have done. Mm. First of all, can you tell us your story, little mm. Kasim's story? So Kasim uh, is our middle child because uh, now I've got three boys. Mm. Uh, uh, baby Adam has been running around yep. here somewhere. <laughs> um, when he was born, he was actually completely fine and healthy. Uh, he was about three weeks old. Um, um, it was almost like night and day. I woke up at about three o'clock in the morning to give him, uh, I was breastfeeding him, to give him some milk. And he just looked yellow to me. And you didn't know whether it's sleep deprivation and you're just exhausted. I was a mum with two children. Uh, mm. The oldest was four at the time. I had lots of doctor friends who would come round to the house and they would all look at him and they'd say, oh, don't worry, Nagat, it's okay. It's breast milk jaundice. It's because you're breastfeeding him and this is exactly what happens. Um, but something wasn't right because after a couple more days, his urine became really dark and his poo became really pale. And right. that's when your doctor instinct kicks in because you think this isn't something mm. that's normal. I took him to my local GP practice and said to, which was a locum GP and said, please, can we just get a blood test organized because I'm not happy. Had a blood test and that evening got a phone call from uh, King's College Hospital, which is the uh, paediatric transplant liver unit. Mm. And they said to me, we're going to book an emergency uh, transport for you from Stoke Mandeville Hospital, which is our local hospital. Your son has um, chronic liver disease and his liver's not working anymore. He was three weeks old. And you just told that over the phone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... I'm really practical and I'm really pragmatic about things. And instantly I just thought that's okay because I'm a medic. I know how the liver works. I'm sure it's one of those resilient, forgiving organs. Uh, we could correct it and it gets better and he'll be back to normal before you know it. I'm not knowing that this will ever lead him even to a longer pathway of possibly transplant. Mm. Went into hospital. They stopped me breastfeeding him. They checked him for viruses. I think the hardest thing was not breastfeeding him mm. because I was in agony. Because when someone tells you to, it, you, I was engorged. It yeah. was horrible. And I found that such a struggle physically. That took its physical toll on me as well as the mental worry that my baby's really poorly. He had a liver biopsy and we met with a professor. And he said to me that um, he has this rare condition called bile export protein pump deficiency, which means that he can't get rid of his bile salts and they're just... A, in his liver, knocking off his liver cells. Mm. And um, every single time the liver tries to regenerate or reheal itself, mistakes are happening. We'll try and give him some medicine so that he can get rid of these bile salts in the meantime. Um, but he, he could go into organ failure. Um, and yeah, he could possibly die. So he was about six weeks old by that time. And I'm sat there going, oh my God. All I, the, the world just stopped because yeah. me and my husband, we just sort of looked at each other going, what, I want to swear, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, what do we do now? I mean, this was such a, 
awaited baby. Our eldest was four. He was desperate for a baby brother or a baby sister. We we had our baby mm. that we wanted, but yet he was poorly. What, what does this do with our work? Mm. Well, how are we going to earn if one of us is looking after a poorly child? Um, and also, again, being practical, I was thinking he needs a transplant. So I said to the surgeons um, the, at the King's Unit, test me, test us, we will donate. And they said, it's not as easy as that because we firstly don't do a lot of live donations in this country. So from a living person mm. to another living person and we'll need to take half of your liver. Um, but you've got a dependent at home. You have a four-year-old. And I think then the statistics at the time they said to me was one in 200, so chance of death. Uh, and you look at that and you think, what? Because I, at the time, I think the statistic was for breast cancer, if I can just put it into a bit of context, mm. was one in 800. Mm. And how often do we hear about breast yeah, cancer? Yeah, I know. So this was even more, that's, a, yeah. that's scary. So they said, no, we'll, we'll wait and we'll put you on the transplant list. But just be wary that you're from a Pakistani ethnic minority group and we don't get a lot of donors from ethnic minorities at right. all. And so you might be waiting a little bit longer. And I said, really? <laughs> And uh, I mean, I'd, I'd never been aware of organ donation. Uh, I'd been, a, as a junior doctor, aware of my seniors counselling family members after a sort of a terrible road accident and approaching the family in that terrible dark time, saying to them, will you be willing to donate? And the family making that decision. But that was my only yeah. exposure to it. It had never been something on my radar. And also... As a Muslim, uh, as a Pakistani uh, from within my Pakistani community, it's not something we ever talked about or was on our radar. And I just believed that it was against my religion. I just so thought... yeah. So is that the reason then? Is it a confusion over mm. over religious guidance? I think you yeah nail on the head there. Yeah, it's the confusion around the religious guidance. Because as I understand it, there's no confusion around accepting a donor. But there is confusion about giving your organs. So within the scriptures, if you look at them, and this is from my understanding, mm. is that we believe that as Muslims, our body is a gift from Allah. Mm. And to our best intentions, we have to try and give that gift back when we die for right. the afterlife right. um, uh, as intact as possible. And therefore, when we die, those organs on our right. Well, that's what the belief is. Right. But also in... In medicine, the in Islam, we consider death as death if your heart stops beating. But in medicine, you can still be, your heart will still be beating if you have a brainstem death. So right. if, your brain's for, for, if your brain is dead, but your heart's still beating, in Islam, that's not considered death. Right. So historically, in order to retrieve organs, your heart still needed to beat in order oh, gosh, to perfuse the organs. It's really complicated. It is yeah. quite complex then, yeah. Very complex yeah. because you need those organs to be profused enough with enough fresh, rich blood, mm. healthy enough. You need to make sure that decay doesn't happen to those organs. But how can you keep that going if the heart's not beating? Yeah. And if the heart's still beating, then in Islam, you're not dead. No. So you are right, okay. technically yeah. not dead and giving your organs away. Well, that doesn't fit well with the theory no. that your body is a gift and you've got to return that back intact. So we had to then go back to the scriptures. So in April 2019, the British Sunni Council released a fatwa because uh, pioneering individuals like Amjad Ali, Mufti Zabar, but they all got together. They looked at the scriptures again because it doesn't sit well with a lot of Muslims that how can we accept an organ but not be able to reciprocate that act, yeah, yeah. that great act of humanity. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of Muslims' belief of what Islam preaches, because Islam is all about humanity and peace and looking after your community and your neighbor as much as possible. So there was this misnomer, this mismatch that was happening. But we know that through a lot of research and science and, and also transplant has come such a long way, but now you can actually retrieve organs such as stem cells, tissue types, um, certain organs after the heart has stopped beating, which makes it permissible in Islam to donate. Um, there's this amazing okay. piece on ITV News where actually this consultant in Newcastle was able to retrieve a heart, put it on some machines, keep it, keep it beating, uh, wow. on machines and then donate that into wow. a living organ wow. see yeah. th that now 
the heart isn't in the body beating, but it's outside the body. Yeah. And yeah, therefore a Muslim person can donate. Yes. It all comes down to personal choice. Yeah. But um, also back to what we were talking about initially about opening up discussions yes. and getting some understanding. Yes. Like you say, it comes down to personal choice, but people need the opportunity to be able to make a decision and a choice in an informed way yeah. rather than just like, oh, well, that's what I think the scriptures say. And what we need to do is exactly as you say, be open and have those difficult conversations because nobody likes talking about death. Nobody mm. likes talking about what they want to do with their body after they're gone, uh, regardless of faith and those with no faith, regardless of your cultural mm. background. That's a shame as well, I think. That's turning turning death into something that we're all very scared of, and yeah, you know, yes. Yeah. I I think that the if you look at social media, um, mainstream media, it's all about the living, and yes. youth is still so much yeah. more prized. And you know, if you're just over the age of thirty, that's it, you're downhill. <laughs> Imagine being fifty. <laughs> yeah, you're still gorgeous, Louise. You're still Thanks. gorgeous. <laughs> all those all those difficult conversations, if they don't happen, it means that actually. Um, knowledge gaps happen within a community which is exactly where I was I mean mm. I'm, a, I'm a doctor and I work within the yeah. NHS and I had this knowledge gap with my faith where does it sit mm. but then my journey taught me actually I'm waiting longer than my white counterpart yeah. so if I just give you the statistics at the time 1,800 people waited on the organ donor register in 2018 wow. one in five will die just waiting just waiting yeah and actually, when you think about the people that die in this country who are f healthy, then we've got a national register that's set up and a retrieval team that is set up in order to harvest organs as well um, to save lives. We're really not using that service mm. appropriately. And also because we're not having those conversations. So Kasim waited and waited until he was about 10 months old. But that wait, oh. oh I can't imagine. I just oh. It was... It was the worst thing that I find it really hard to talk about now because otherwise I start crying. No, I know it's making <laughs> but it my was the, smart it was, about it. It yeah. was the it's it's the worst way. But do you know, at the time I was still working. Yeah. Um, I was looking after my four year old. I was looking after Kasim with all his medical checks. And for some to, reason, you just function and you yeah. go through it. But mm. also every single time, if a phone rang with no caller ID, I'd pick it up yeah. thinking it's the hospital this telling me to come it. in. Yeah. Unfortunately, he then collapsed at home because he couldn't retain his sugars anymore because his liver had got so bad. And then they did a, a few more tests and he was going into multi-organ failure. And... <sighs> Everyone kept saying to me, oh, it must be so much easier being a doctor with a child that needs a transplant. No. It was, it, no, no. It, it was difficult because sometimes I knew the conversations that the doctors wanted to talk to me about before they even happened. Mm. And I just remember absolutely petrified that they would start palliative discussions with me. Mm. How do I palliate mm. a 10 month old? Yeah, no. How do I take him home yeah. and oh. watch him die? Yeah. When I knew that he needed this transplant, when I know what the treatment is mm -hmm. as well, but we're just waiting. But then they're so worried. So it got to a critical 24-hour period. And I was like, do you know what? I you Take anything, take whatever mm -hmm. you need because you get to that point as a parent. And I, I yeah. was a match with him. And I, because we'd sort of had those conversations leading up to it because I was just getting desperate. Um, they found that he had liver cancer. Mm. And that's why... They, he was right on the critical list in the National Register. And uh, then this miracle of miracle happened. I got a phone call. Uh, this is sort of at two o'clock in the morning saying, we've got a match for your son. Um, it's it's not a it's not a complete match. The, the donor is O positive, so it's universal. Mm. Kasim is B positive. Um, but because it's a universal donor, he'll match with Kasim. We'll mm. make sure that we transfer some plasma cells, get his, make sure that he takes on the host, org, you know, the host organ, and uh, we'll centrifuge his blood so that we can try and make sure there's very little rejection. Because then the other hole, you get a transplant and you get that precious organ, but what if the body rejects it? Mm. So you've got to think about all of that. Oh, yeah. And um, you you go through the motions. And it was only when I got him home, because we went after, we had then, it took him six months to recover from his transplant. This little 10 month old mm. had his transplant. Uh, he spent his first birthday 
in hospital attached to machines. And it was six months down the line that I was just washing dishes and I couldn't stop crying. Just, yeah. Because well, it hit me. It just could. hit me like a train. Because I just thought, oh my God. And do you know, the, the reason I was crying was because of what we'd been through. And the other thing I was crying for was the loss that this mother had experienced. For because it's bittersweet. The organ donor. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was um, another child. That was another. Little, little so was uh, they, didn't, they didn't tell me the details because it's an anonymous system. So you don't know about never, the... You'll never, never know. To. You'll never get to know them because it's meant to be an altruistic act. So you, there's no sharing of right, money or kindness yeah. or, you know, just saying thank you to somebody. And some parents aren't ready to even talk about it. But uh, they do give you some information because I was insistent. I wanted to write a letter of thanks and then they'll look at it and they'll cut out any identifiable information and then pass it on because it's done through a mediatory transplant team. And they told me that it was a a young boy. So in my head, you almost romanticise it a little bit and think it's somewhere between the age of eight and about 14. He was on his bike, um, fell off his bike, hit the back of his neck and and died unfortunately and had a brainstem injury. And it was in hospital when they asked the parents that we are, you know, would you be willing to donate? And apparently that was the first time that the family had ever thought about organ donation. Mm. They said, yeah, we've got this little baby that's waiting at King's College Hospital. He needs a liver. Would you be willing to donate your child's all? And this is what gets me. I have no idea how those parents found that courage to say yes. Like, how do you then, at that time, because, you know, it's it's finite, you've got to do it quickly in order to get the healthiest organs. So is it a point before maybe you've accepted there is no hope of your child's... Uh, was he... He died? Yeah, so... So he had died? He was on a machine. Okay. Uh, but he, he had brainstem injury, mm. so he had a complete head injury. So they kept him on a machine right. to keep his heart going. But you, that's a decision they've got to make very quickly, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, how do you do that? I know. Uh-oh. Like how how does that how did that family make that decision? And this is where then I think, do you know what? We we think that we are amazing individuals because of the titles that we keep. You know, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a physiotherapist, I'm amazing. Mm. No. No. The thing that makes you amazing is of those great acts of humanity. Mm. Mm. And so you take away your titles, you take away your faith, you take away the things that we mm. think, do you know what, that really makes me me. Yeah. And when you actually take those away and think, inside it, if you can't be kind, um, show humanity, uh, do great acts of passion, mm. then actually those titles that you hold yeah. dear mean nothing. Your no. faith means nothing mm. if you can't actually then do something that's going to save somebody else's life. Mm. And I think that's what hit me mm. when I just couldn't stop crying. Because yeah. I just thought, this woman did this for me yeah. and she's mourning her baby, whereas I'm living my life with my son and making memories with him. I ex- but I expect that's a huge comfort to her. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I hope it, I, because, the, so, so, and the other thing I come back to is that I never talked to, I never spoke about Kasim's journey. I never spoke, in, even in our community. Mm. I would get people asking me, how's Kasim? Oh, he's all right. He's just having some tests in a hospital. Oh, how's your hospital? Oh, it's okay, auntie. It was all right. We, there's mm. this, there's this thing in our community where we don't talk about something because you just want to not discuss it. Mm. It's private, it's personal. You don't want to air your dirty laundry in public. And there's this phrase that we have, which is embedded in me, which is like, what will people say? Wow. Yeah. And so when you are, when you have that embedded in you, for anything, mental health, what will people say? Your marriage is breaking down, what will people say? Mm. You know, you're having domestic violence. It's a don't real talk barrier about it. To, yeah. to, to getting support, to, yeah. you know, to, to having discussions. Exactly. Yeah. Domestic mm. violence, what will people say? That's mm. the first thing your elders will tell you. Mm. And that's embedded in you. And mm. the minute that's embedded in you, you don't ever talk about it. And then that was me. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh my God, and I had utter shame. Mm. 
literally I was crippled with shame because I thought this mother who I don't know, I don't know what her faith was. I don't know what her color, her creed, anything about her. She had the humanity to not care about what people think, but saved my son's life when she knew she couldn't take her baby home. Mm. And she allowed me to take my baby home. Mm. And I, for F's sake, (laughs) can't even talk about it. And how is Kasim now? He's amazing. Yes, he's okay. I've he seen is... him on Breakfast TV. <laughs> <laughs> he, oh, he loves the limelight. He just loves it. He's amazing. And I think that he's given me the courage to talk about taboo stuff and to yeah. not hide away and have a voice almost uh, in regards to bridging that gap between my community and almost like Western communities and, and doing it in a, in a culturally sensitive way. Because sometimes we can be seen as quite an insular community who doesn't integrate very much. And right. I'm really keen mm. to show that we are integrating yeah. and we're reaching out. And I'm really proud of my roots. I really want to show the people mm. that actually we, we want to work with all the systems that are in, in the UK. And we're not insular at all. So on that subject of organ donation and the issues around you know, ethnic minorities, where can people go to get more information and support? So the first thing is, is that I get that conversation started. Think mm. about it at home because you, you yeah. sort of hit the nail on the head earlier. You said we don't like to talk about dying. Nobody does, but it's going to happen. Mm. And actually think about what your wishes would be. And if they are, let your family know. Yeah. It's really important because... Because a, a big piece of study was done and that showed that particularly um, the younger generation, they are really keen, they're, they're open to the idea of organ donation. But the elders, who still probably are entrenched in their cultural ways or their misunderstanding, don't have that information yet because of access to internet or social media, etc. So have those conversations at home. There's a fantastic um, uh, Facebook group called Share Your Wishes. Uh, I would definitely advise people to go to that. If you put that into Google, you'll find it. And also NHS Blood and Transplant Services. That's evidence-based. There's loads of information. In spring 2020, so this year, there's going to be the opt-out law. So everybody's considered an organ donor unless they opt out. I really encourage people to please uh, do your own research make an informed decision you know people always think oh it must be because you've i don't know particularly liver it must be because of lifestyle choices well actually no anyone can need an organ at any point mm. diabetes high blood pressure all of those conditions can lead to the fact that you need an organ mm. at some point so if it's not you now it might be you 10 15 20 years down the line or if not you then your relative mm. and that weight on the donor is the hardest mm. weight what's 2020 got in store for you my cat. <laughs> uh, so you might actually see me on tv a bit more i'm gonna do a couple of projects i've got an upcoming episode in uh, food or scare for the bbc where i talk about the effects of chili and how chilies can affect us right and then i filmed that with chris bavin last year well, I think um, I saw something on when you were at a chili farm. Yeah, we, oh, yes. I was so excited. It was yeah. so, so much fun. I never thought that I'd end up doing TV work. Um, I look at a lot of these doctors on TV, so TV doctors, and I admire them, but I always used to think, oh, go on to your patient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come into the real world. Yeah. And now I'm that person. Yeah. I'm such a snob. <laughs> so, I, I heard another doctor talking about that anxiety on a pod, on another podcast the other day about just that feeling of like what are the other doctors going to think yeah yeah and but I come back to that you know what will people say yes. I, you know what I've given up on it so people can Good. say whatever they like because when they really meet me in real life yeah. I'm actually yeah I I lark around and mm. I prance around and I try and sprinkle a little bit of goodness if I can. All of the resources that you've mentioned today will be on the show notes for this episode. So thank you so much for talking to me today, Nagat. We know that menopause needs so much more understanding and it's a conversation that's really taking off, thank goodness. But the issues we've discussed today around ethnic minority groups really need to be opened up for discussion. And of course, your continued work is um, invaluable. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a a real honour and a real joy. 
Made by darkhorsedigital.co.uk. Shooting, live streaming and podcast production. Hello, this is Rich Wilson, host of the podcast Insane in the Membrane, where we talk to funny and interesting people about men's mental health. People like James Acaster. Because we won't talk about emotions because we think that's bad. We won't talk about feelings because that's bad. So they've, they've had to rebrand it and go, it's mental health. <laughs> oh, oh, talk, oh, oh, yeah. Gosh, yeah. Mental. Our, our brains are so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty clever. Uh, like, like, okay, I'll get, I'll get into my mental health. Yeah, that's it. I like puzzles. <laughs> and Rob Beckett. I've never even done a school play. <laughs> I did some open mic gigs. Uh, Did the Edinburgh Fringe, got on, somehow got on the telly. And I'm in the other side of the world, in the jungle, doing nights. <laughs> following out and deck. And David Baddiel. The mum comes up to me and says, I'm starting this charity, and it's for men and mental health in men, and would you like to be the patron of it? And my first thought was, all oh, right, so I come to this place every day. If I say no, she's going to be looking oh, yeah. at me every day like, you <laughs> cunt, you <laughs> uncaring, pretending to be interested in mental health. Search Insane in the Membrane from wherever you get your podcasts. Brand new episodes every Thursday at 6pm. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.